Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Earthshot Labs podcast. I'm Patrick Lung, the co-founder of Earthshot, and with me is Armando Davila Kirkwood, who is our head of events and communications. And today we're here to talk to a special guest about planetary regeneration. Billions of trees have been planted since the 1960s, but only 18% of the organizations mention monitoring at all, and only 5% mention survival. So, like, we have, we don't know, like, what's succeeding, what's not succeeding, why, you know, what are people doing? And th those are just failed opportunities to learn how to do better. And we really need to elevate information from the ground up to figure out what's working and why and share that so that we can all learn and do better next time. At Earthshot, we are a science-driven organization. We have a team of ecologists and machine learning specialists who focus on predicting the outcomes of ecological restoration so that we can finance projects in the carbon markets based on nature restoration and preservation. And one of our collaborators is a very special person, Susan Cook-Patton. So Susan is a senior forest restoration scientist on the Natural Climate Solutions Science Team at the Nature Conservancy. She works to quantify the climate mitigation potential of reforestation and infuse science into policy decisions. Susan has over a decade of experience leading scientific investigations into how changes in biodiversity and climate are impacting forest, grassland, and urban ecosystems. Before joining the Nature Conservancy, she was a policy fellow at the U.S. Forest Service and a research fellow at the Smithsonian Institution. Susan holds a PhD in community ecology from Cornell University and bachelor degrees in biology, psychology, and English from Indiana University. We are super happy to have Susan here today. She's been a wonderful collaborator on a range of different initiatives within our science team. Welcome, Susan. Great. Thank you for inviting me. And maybe to start out with, you can give us all an idea of the research that you're currently conducting. So I like to describe myself as a carbon accountant, which sounds kind of boring, but is actually a really exciting and fun job where my goal is to try to improve our understanding of reforestation as a natural climate solution and figure out how much carbon can we get from regrowing forests across the globe and how does that vary depending on where you are and what you do. So what I like to say is that reforestation is a highly promising natural climate solution. Um, it's important to remember it's not the only solution. Uh, first and foremost, of course, uh, we have to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. But even if we sharply drop our emissions, we're still going to need to pull additional carbon out of the atmosphere. And trees are millennia old, millions of years, <laughs> project and development uh, technology for pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it down in, in long-term wood stores. But, you know, people think about reforestation, they leap towards tree planting. And the other thing I like to emphasize is there's lots of different ways to get trees back into the landscape. And no, there's no single best solution. You can let a forest naturally regrow. You can set up more of a plantation or agroforestry system where livelihoods are paramount. And yes, it's really about what works best for a local community and what their needs are. I'd love to hear more about that. We're really focused on local communities here at Earthshot as well, in terms of just making sure that whatever projects that we get engaged with on the reforestation side also benefit communities, indigenous peoples, and so on. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about what you've seen out there as far as the key things that need to happen to make sure that communities are included and, uh, and actually benefit from these reforestation efforts. 
Yes, so I'm a scientist that sits behind a computer uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. So, alas, I'm not actually the one that's on the ground getting to work closely with these communities. But I will say that that's something that is taken very seriously at the Nature Conservancy. And I have many colleagues that spend a lot of time making sure that communities are involved in the design, the implementation, and the benefits of the project. And there has been research to show sort of what makes a successful natural climate solutions project. And usually the first factor that is associated with success is having like sincere engagement um, and consideration of local needs. It seems kind of obvious that if the community wants the project, they'll champion it to completion. But I feel like the uh, extractive industries that were backed by imperial power and big money really set a precedent that you can just do whatever you want and either buy off the community or lock them into bad contracts or unfortunately kill their leaders when they protest your your mine or whatever. It's an issue that people are increasingly aware of um, and trying to do better. There is sort of a history of um, the environmental movement not doing good by local communities. But I think it, it comes up at least once a day in the conversations uh, that I have with people like, okay, but how do we make sure that this is going to work for local communities? And, and you know, when you're thinking about reforestation, you need the trees to last. And the trees that are going to last are the ones that the local community wants and will benefit from. I'm curious, Susan, like, what are you excited about when it comes to the near future of ecological science and more specifically the work that your group is doing? Like, what are the things that really energize you about this work on the technical side as well as on the practical side? Well, I mean, what energizes me is it also keeps, keeps me up at night is just concern about the fate of our climate. And what is exciting is that there are so many people working on finding solutions. And I'm just feel incredibly grateful that I get to be one of those people that works on finding ways to stave off the climate crisis. Um, what personally excites me about my work, I think is actually probably pretty boring to the average person, but it's just having really good carbon numbers, right? Like we are making decisions about where we want to invest our money to achieve additional climate mitigation. And often the numbers people have on hand just aren't very good, right? Like they don't have time to do all the digging to find that information. And so I just, I'd love... I love scraping through thousands of scientific publications and putting it all together in a useful form and getting it out there in the world so that people can have good numbers of like, okay, this is how much I can expect. And it's it's a good, accurate reflection of, of the mitigation they can actually achieve. So, you know, that's not that exciting, but it's really critical to make sure we're investing all of our resources wisely because we don't have a lot of time to mess it up. As a former Google employee, like I'm really curious about the process of finding and extracting and collating and normalizing all that data because uh, it sounds laborious, but it also sounds like maybe your group has cooked up some interesting ways to do that. Not yet. I mean, I am uh, I'm a muddy boots ecologist by training. So I did much of my PhD with a pair of muddy boots and a ruler and a stool and a clicker to count all the bugs I could see. So I'm learning a lot from my collaborators. I will say we have I have huge hopes 
that there will be some sort of AI solution for extracting and harmonizing and collating all that information, as you say, Patrick, but we haven't yet found it. There's just the way the information is provided in scientific papers is so variable, changes from table to table, and the human brain is just so incredible at drawing those connections. So I would say it's more laborious than not, but there are steps where we've leveraged AI solutions to to accelerate sort of finding the papers and sort of sifting through. But then when it comes to just the really yeoman work of pulling the numbers out of papers, there's there's nothing better than a human brain yet. But I'd love to be proven wrong if someone can find a solution for me. Wonderful. You're the unsung heroes of this whole process of ecological restoration because pulling out the data from a bunch of other studies is not typically what one thinks of when when we think about data science and sexy sort of modeling techniques and all that kind of thing is you've got to have good data to actually make all that work. What would be your dream usage of this data? Like what would you love to see happen once you have enough of this data collected that other researchers or maybe even your own group would go and start using it to, to do something amazing in the world? So I'm driven by the fact that we have a climate critical decade here, the decisive decade is what our comms team likes to say. And I want to say people time. Right. So I want people to be able to find the places in the globe where they're going to get the highest carbon returns per hectare of investment so that they can then go there and work with the local communities and say, like, okay, you know, do you want to do reforestation here and how? Or if I do this type of intervention versus that type of intervention, I can get more carbon or better biodiversity just to really accelerate those decisions about where to focus. Uh, That is, I think, where our work is most useful and having my science used to make those decisions and make them quickly so we can move on to the actual implementation sooner is what I would love to see. You know, at at Earthshot, we really pride ourselves on the fact that half of our science team consist of women. And to me as a tech professional, having worked in so many other technical teams where that's far from being the case, I'm pretty proud of that actually. And I just wanted to create the space for you to share just how you got into science in the first place and what the key pivotal moments were that kind of drew you into that realm because perhaps a lot of other women out there might be inspired by that and and might want to follow suit. Yes. So I'll start by saying what really motivates my work, um, which is that I've got two young kids. I have an eight-year-old and an almost three-year-old. And I thought long and hard about whether I should have a kid because I was concerned about the future of our globe. But we also really wanted to start a family. And I thought like, okay, If we're having a family, I'm going to make sure that I spend my career fighting long and hard for their future as well as the future of all of the the world's children. So that's what motivates me. As far as my individual path to where I am now, it was quite meandering. I think I spent a long time trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was a biology, psychology, and English major uh, in undergraduate and was going to go on and study neuroscience, had gotten into grad school, but was crying every day because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And my dad was like, you know, you don't have to go straight to grad school. And I was like, oh, I don't. And my now husband, then boyfriend was like, I always kind of saw you as a biologist. And I was like, no, I'm 22. Like I've chosen my path. It's set. But I took two years off. I worked at a nature center, went back and worked in an ecology lab and realized like, oh, people are still studying organisms and how they're interacting with each other. Um, That's what I want to do. So I got a PhD at Cornell doing plant insect community ecology, where my main question was looking at how 
biodiversity is changing and what are the implications of that for how well our ecosystems perform, which I liked. It was super fun. I got to look at a lot of bugs on plants, but I was really driven to work uh, on climate change, which is the most pressing problem that our world has probably ever faced. And so I took the same sort of research questions, but moved to the Smithsonian, where we got to look at how the diversity of forest ecosystems impacts how well they grow, as well as how mangrove forests, which are critical for buffering shorelines, how those are the distribution of mangrove species are changing with climate change. And then from there, I got a fellowship to work at the U.S. Forest Service, where I didn't do any science at all. It was a policy analysis, but similar skills that I use now of lots of information out there needs to be distilled down for decision makers so that they can make a good and informed decision. And after that, was lucky enough to get a job at the Nature Conservancy, where I've been for the last six years. I have a question about the insects, actually. I, I did hear that like part of the sixth mass extinction was like massive bug loss. And I feel like in the conversation about biodiversity, it's mostly about the big animals and not about the tiny ones. And But we know that like bees obviously are like critical for the planet and are in danger. But I feel like the rest of the insects don't get as much airtime and human consciousness. I, I don't hear about building habitat for insects. I mean, they're pretty proficient on doing that themselves, but what's, what's the insect tree carbon relationship? You, Armando, you just like push the button that you're going to regret ever pushing. But let me tell you about caterpillars. So there's actually been work by um, Dr. Doug Ptolemy where he has shown the diversity of caterpillars that you can find on native tree species compared to non-native tree species. And he's got these great examples of how he goes out in his yard. and It's like, oh, this one had like, you know, 100 different caterpillars, 10 different species. And this one had one caterpillar, one species. Like, what's the difference between that first and a second example? One was native and the other was non-native. So he has this whole book called Bringing Nature Home, where it advocates for people establishing native trees in their own backyards as a way to support caterpillar diversity. And he's like, okay, people don't care about caterpillars, though you should. Like once you start looking at caterpillars, they are so many crazy forms. They're just amazing creatures. But Doug realized that people do care about birds. And we think about birds eating sort of worms and berries and seeds, but what they're actually feeding their young are primarily caterpillars. It's like 96% of terrestrial birds are actually feeding their young caterpillars. So if you want to support the whole ecosystem, plant native trees. <laughs> That's amazing. Because I was actually about to ask, is there any unusual fact that you would share about insects and plants that surprised and by but it sounds like you already just did that because that's an amazing fact i never knew the other thing white oaks in particular are one of the most caterpillar speciose trees that you could imagine so uh if you're it's for sort of my my region my neck of the world washington dc area research on unaided regeneration versus tree planting and 
you know, I didn't go fully, fully deep on it, I have to admit, but my like basic understanding is that we lose carbon in soil when we plant trees and disturbing the soil, you know, just has a loss. And so there's like maybe some soil ecology stuff that needs to go into large scale tree planting to kind of like, you know, facilitate the trees and like maybe some other like higher end soil support services. But again, with the insects, I'm like, there's tons of insects in good soil. And I feel like maybe we're being oversimplistic and we're just thinking about planting trees instead of doing like a more holistic ecological support thing of like soil inoculation, mycelium, maybe some like beneficial insects. I, yeah, I'm wondering because like the insects and the carbon, like do insects affect carbon stores? I mean, I don't know like how many insects are like supporting trees in their life cycle. Well, when we think about the carbon accumulation in a reforestation project, the biggest pool really to consider is the tree biomass itself. But soil does have an impact. Uh, Our understanding is pretty slim, noisy about how much soil accumulation happens. Um, We spent a lot of time trying to collect the data and it was just the error bars were enormous and came down to like, okay, you're getting about, you know, a half a ton of carbon per hectare per year compared to like six tons of carbon from the tree biomass. Um, so it's just orders of magnitude more in the tree biomass. But we do need to know a lot more about how the soil is impacted by different reforestation approaches. I think that's a that's a frontier. And what can we do as far as mycorrhizal inoculation to boost tree performance, I think is also a frontier. So I, I'm always really fascinated to talk to people who go through a lot of data because many times when we look at data really closely and really analyze it, there are unexpected insights or conclusions that we can draw that might go against common sort of knowledge or wisdom. And so I'm kind of curious, having looked at all this data across the world related to tree growth and so on, have there any surprises in there that might have arisen from analyzing data at that level of detail? Any surprises? Um, Right now we're in the thick of building an agroforestry carbon data set. And when we left it towards the end for a reason, because agroforestry is a particularly complicated set of practices to capture. I mean, these are longstanding indigenous practices as well as, you know, modern day type systems recently invented. And, you know, they happen all over the world, have bunch of different configurations, lots of different management practices, all of these things are going to affect the carbon. So like, okay, that's going to be a big one to tackle. But I used to say like, okay, it's going to be hard to do the carbon accounting because of the sheer diversity of practices, but it's also going to be hard uh, just because of the scarcity of data. But once we started looking and sort of like shaking the literature tree, paper upon paper upon paper is falling out so that we have about 2,000 different studies that we're working with right now and, you know, fantastic coverage across the globe. So that's exciting and a good reminder of how much information is out there that we aren't using. And individual meta-analyses would just like cut off a tiny little sliver of that. It's like, okay, let's learn from everything that's out there to build a much more robust and predictive model of how much carbon we can capture from different agroforestry systems and and all understand why it varies from one farm to the next. So that was one surprise. One of the critiques for agroforestry is that the trees grow differently, right? Like they might be sort of shorter and broader than a tree grown in a forest. But the equations people use to turn a measurement at sort of tree diameter into sort of a biomass measure, people are going out with tapes, 
those allometric equations, those equations are based on forest trees. That was the critique and that there weren't good ways to measure biomass in agroforestry trees. But it, from my look, it looks like most people are doing the harvest and measurement and destructive harvest of trees within agroforestry systems. So all of these critiques about allometric equations, oh, this is far too wonky. Being wrong for agroforestry systems, I don't think holds. I think people are actually getting good agroforestry measurements. That's actually great news for us because it means we don't have to go and try and figure this out on our own. Right. Yeah. Because you, you mentioned um, indigenous uh, practices before for agroforestry. I'm curious, are there any patterns you're seeing as far as the efficacy or pros and cons or any conclusions to be drawn from those practices that are maybe less prevalent but still show up in the studies versus more conventional farming or sort of Western agroforestry practices? Yeah, I mean, I think we need both. Um, there's specific types of practices that are going to work in specific cultural and environmental contexts. So we have colleagues working in Ecuador on these systems that are called chakra systems that are sort of shifting cultivation combined with enrichment planting um, that can be incredibly biodiverse. So those are really exciting. But, you know, those of us in the global north also need to think about how can we get trees into our landscapes and something like, you know, a dense multi-strata system is going to work in a um, you know, field in the U.S. So they're like, can we figure out these sort of alley cropping systems, like large lines of trees where you can get the combine in between? Um, so there's no one sort of best uh, solution. It's really about figuring out what works for a, a given context. I feel like all this work that you're doing is so important. And uh, like the whole kind of like carbon market space is like predicated on these uh, like, you know, Earthshot makes carbon projections too. And we also have the Biome app, which is also trying to measure trees. Corporates are trying to buy these offsets and they're like, we, we're like net zero based on these projections, more or less. And so like people like you are actually the kind of another essential worker in this whole transition. But, but it's, it's a little bit like we don't really have any enforceable mechanisms to say, here's what the earth can handle. Here's what the ecological restoration is going to provide in the next years and so our carbon reductions need to like do x y and z based on that science and i don't know do you ever get frustrated that like you're clarifying all this information and like a certain sector is using it and then another sector is completely ignoring it i mean because in a way it's, it sounds like you're calculating the sequestration potential and all these nuanced ecologies but if we don't yield to those numbers of like how much the earth can handle, like, how do you feel about that? What keeps me up at night is that people would think that we can use natural climate solutions like reforestation instead of fossil fuel reductions, because it's not sort of an either or, it's a both and, right? Like we need to substantially remove reduce the amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases that we're pumping into the atmosphere, but we also need to pull it out of the atmosphere too. And so I think what I get frustrated at about is when people sort of latch on to sort of a single solution and then they're like, oh, that's not enough. <laughs> and then they throw out the whole solution. Like that's what I um, I get frustrated about. It, my analogy, I'll try it out on you guys and see if it works. Is it sort of reforestation is like a hammer and tackling climate change is like building a house. And can you build a house with a hammer alone? No. Uh, can you build a house without a hammer? Like probably not. <laughs> Um, and then people are like, well, uh, 
you know, I can't build a whole house with the reef with my reforestation hammer, throw out the hammer. <laughs> and then later on, we're like, shoot, we needed that. Like, we need to deploy all available opportunities that we have at hand. And right now, natural climate solutions are more cost effective than more technological carbon removal approaches. But we also need those technological carbon removal approaches as well as starch sharp reductions of fossil fuel emissions too. Susan, I was, I was kind of curious, just going back to the theme of um, you having been through so much data and having a really wide view of what's going on in the world. Like, are there any particular kinds of restoration projects or ecosystems that you would love groups like Earthshot to engage in? Like, are there any that you still would just love to see happen? Oh, I mean, again, it's like, I would love to see projects that empower and work for local communities, most of all, which you guys are already taking to heart. Um, the one sort of under, well, there's two undervalued. One, natural forest regrowth, I think is sort of forgotten too often that we just feel like we need to do something, right? And people like planting trees, but Trees are hard to acquire. They're expensive. It takes a lot of time to put them in the ground and then you have to take care of them. When we forget if the conditions are right, the trees can grow back perfectly well on their own and you're perhaps more likely to get back a, a native forest. It's a reforestation approach, but you have to make the decision to like, okay, I'm going to stop mowing. I'm going to take the cows off the landscape, whatever the dominant disturbance is um, and, and allow the forest to come back on its own. Yeah, this is basically what happened in the northeast of the U.S., right? Is that right. there's less logging going on and trees just grew back. And there's all these studies showing that we probably couldn't have done better ourselves. And right. that's probably because there was still enough forest to actually for that to happen. Whereas in California, that might not be the case anymore. We did. Um, we planted 20,000 trees um, along the Chesapeake Bay when I was a postdoc at the Smithsonian. Um, and some of the trees that grew the best were the ones we didn't plant. They were the ones that were coming up from rootstocks and from uh, from seeds. I actually just went out last fall and I've been telling this story forever. Like, oh, the ones that grew best were the plots where we didn't do anything. <laughs> And I got out there and I couldn't find the plot where we didn't do anything. And I was like, oh, no, I've been lying to people all these years. But I couldn't find it because it had blended into the forest edge. Like it had turned into its own little forest patch. And I was like, oh, oh, that whole forest there. That's the, that's the patch that we just let regrow on its own. The other thing, Patrick, uh, that I'd love to see people do more is is mixed timber plantations, right? Like the world needs timber. It can make a reforestation project more viable. And we've spent a lot of time over the years uh, perfecting these sort of monoculture plantations. But sort of to the point that we made earlier about can we learn from ecology to do better reforestation projects? When you diversify systems, you're more resilient to uh, disturbances. You're better supporting of biodiversity. And I just think it's an under underutilized approach to, to think about how can we diversify plantations to both provide livelihoods but um, improve the the biodiversity value of those those systems with natives ideally too. I was about to ask you like do you have strong opinions about whether exotic sort of timber plantations are okay even in a mixed scenario um, but it sounds like the caterpillar story maybe answers <laughs> that question for me. <laughs> I mean, it, it's uh, what is going to work best for a person. But if, if yes, I, I recommend native species as much as possible for all the different reasons. Like our native systems are just so highly evolved. We don't understand them. And if we can use natives to support caterpillars and feed birds, yes, uh, all for natives. Amazing. Totally different topic. Like I was just wondering, uh, as a parent, like I have a daughter and I'm sure maybe there are many parents out there listening to this podcast, like just... There is a shortage of women in STEM, and I'm just kind of wondering, as a prominent woman scientist, like, are there any 
words you have about that, about how we might be able to bring more women in to this. I think it's even worse in software engineering, but certainly also I'm guessing in many areas of science that there's just quite a imbalance and it's obviously a very rewarding and amazing career path. Yes. I mean, I don't know if I would say anything that was particularly new or novel, um, but there's the importance of mentors and often women don't have good mentorship. Um, People who tell them that they can do it and pick them up after setbacks and elevate their voices. I received excellent mentorship. I've had only wonderful bosses <laughs> who have sort of elevated and promoted me, and that made a huge difference. And I tried to pay that forward and elevate other women, people who are earlier in their career, encourage them, give them the opportunities to, to step into leadership roles. But yeah, it takes a village. We all need to be looking out for, for everybody. And with my own daughters, I just tell them. So uh, we just had our, uh, our election for governor uh, in Maryland, the primaries. And my daughter's like, why aren't there any women? And I was like, I know. <laughs> like Maybe one day it could be you. <laughs> we need to do better. I remember at, at Google and other places I've worked in the past, there were big discussions around sort of where does this begin? Like what's the root cause of this dramatic sort of shortage in, in, of women in STEM? And there was a quite a prominent thesis that it actually started in high school where young women are really subtly encouraged not to do science or it's just subtly there's social pressures there or cultural norms where um, it's just harder for women to feel that that is a valid path for them and certainly I, I can definitely see how a lack of role models or mentors or prominent famous people to idolize might be part of that but just wondering if you have any thoughts on that since your daughters are kind of going through this by the sound of it or could be going through this. I have high hopes that the world be entirely fixed uh, for them, right? That we will have solved climate change, that there will be self-driving cars so that I do not have to worry about them when they are 16, um, and that we will have resolved all longstanding iniquities. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, we're not going to get there unless we all sort of lean in and and keep pushing for a better future. In high school, that's interesting. I went to an all-girls high school, which was great because um, there was no <laughs> there was no pressure to not do science, or there was definitely pressure to for the opposite. I had a wonderful high school uh, biology teacher who was the first one who made me realize that all the yellow flowers I see are not all the same species, but actually like twenty different species. And like when you start looking, that's when you really begin to appreciate the diversity and uh, beauty of life around you. So maybe we do need these um, inspirational biology, female biology teachers to, uh, to, sa- to, to save, save our future here. Speaking of mentorship, I mean, one thing I've just been kind of openly wondering about is how the distribution of knowledge is going to occur within the decade and within the next few decades, because, you know, we have traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous wisdom, we have academic post-academic knowledge production. We have children around the world who are going to be inheriting the legacies of these large-scale reforestation projects. You know, we're, we're talking about, like, what kind of role do we play at Earthshot in, you know, we're trying to finance large-scale ecological restoration, but are we also trying to add a lot more capacity to folks on the ground, you know, scientific workshops on nuanced subjects that will help the project or build literacy in the community, and vice versa. So I, I, I've been wondering, like, do we need as robust of a knowledge sharing infrastructure to happen with this large scale ecological work that's going to be happening um, this is decisive decade? I'm wondering if you have any 
thoughts or opinions on that? Yes. I have two separate thoughts. Which one do I start with? One of the best models that I've seen is something that Yale runs called the Environmental Leadership Training Initiative, which is sort of a train-the-trainer approach where they bring people from communities, train them up in ecological and restoration science, and then they go back and they're ambassadors in their communities and empowered to do the work. And so sort of a great way of bringing in their knowledge and, and combining it with sort of academic knowledge and, and practitioner knowledge and getting it back out into the communities. As far as knowledge sharing, I think we could do a lot better. We had a paper where uh, the lead, Meredith Martin, and her team went through all of the publicly available information for all tropical tree planting organizations that they could find. It was like 176 and they found that uh, billions of trees have been planted, over a billion trees, since the 1960s. But only 18% of the organizations mention monitoring at all, and only 5% mention survival. So, like, we, have, we don't know, like, what's succeeding, what's not succeeding, why, you know, what are people doing? And th- those are just failed opportunities to learn how to do better. And we really need to sort of elevate information from the ground up to figure out what's working and why and share that so that we can all uh, learn and do better next time. I have a kind of a follow-up to that. Like, I... I... Definitely, it seems that um, both you and your organization and us at Earthshot share a deep belief in open data and open science. And it did kind of surprise me coming into this because I'm not a science scientist by by training or by background. I kind of came into this as an amateur. And I, I, I sort of, it surprised me just how difficult sometimes it was to obtain data or even impossible. And uh, I just would have thought, oh, well, science is all about open everything and everyone shares everything. So I'm kind of wondering, are there shifts that you would like to see in terms of, let's just say even behavioral shifts, both within industry as well as within science to facilitate much more data being available? Because it seems that in some cases you're going to great, great pains. You're, you're expending a great amount of effort to dig this data up. And could there be uh, ways that we can make this much easier for your group and others to just make a whole bunch more data available for humanity and for science. Just to put a little extra note on that, though, our, our science advisor, Trevor, who's situated in UC Berkeley, we had an event last night, and he was saying how he put all this work publishing papers, and no one read it. No one was reading the papers he was doing, and he was like really excited to be in a group of people who are committed to doing like physical world change. But I, I feel like maybe that's the problem: is that people are publishing papers, but they're not actionable directly because the source code and the the data are not out there. I'm not saying, obviously, not saying that that's necessarily what Trevor's sort of problem is, but it's it's more just like there are many cases where I found these amazing papers, and it was like, well, where's the actual code that we can go run to test this out and to run it on our data kind of thing, or where's your data that we can use to drive our models? And it's, it's sort of seldom there. So it's a sort of pleasant surprise, at least I found, when someone's posted something on GitHub and they have the data set available for download and so on. But we'd just love to get your thoughts, Susan, on that as far as other shifts you would love to see that we can advocate for and that we can hopefully inspire others to, to follow suit in order to, to make that just more, way more prevalent in the scientific community. Yes. So I am, as you pointed out, a huge open data advocate and everything that we do, we make fully publicly available so that people can build on it. Because usually we know like what we put out there is like maybe if we're lucky 75% of the way from what they need and there's sort of additional building layers, whatever elements that they need to, to build in to make it work for them. And 
the things, the database construction that we do takes a really long time, you know, years to, to pull it all together. What I would really love to see is some sort of dynamic platform because we're getting new papers, new studies every day. And you can't have sort of a small team like mine just sort of trying to stay on top of that and, and keep it up to date. It's always getting behind. And our world is also changing, too. So we need more sort of up to date information about how our forests are performing. So some sort of system, sort of big global repository where people are entering their data in a consistent framework. This would be the dream uh, that we could then all use and analyze. The only but I would say is that a lot of those data are collected with a, you know, true blood, sweat, and tears, right? Like it's collected in, in hard to reach locations often, and the collectors need to be rewarded um, for their efforts. So, you know, I, I understand why people don't want to share that information because it was very hard won and they want to be able to use it to for their own purposes, their own science, their own communities. So I think that's where the the challenge lies and sort of rewarding, finding ways to reward people to sort of share the data in ways that work for them as well as the the broader global community. That makes sense. Like how do you get from like blood, sweat and tear produced data set to like behavioral change and cultural level integration? And I, I, I went to PBS, like Sesame Street or like Bill Nye type figures, pop culture translators or something like that. I imagine we need like multiple levels of educational or entertaining educational content. I like, I don't know how the knowledge gets distributed through society and culture. I always, I've felt for years there's a broken feedback mechanism between like PhDs and the high science and the lay people. We want to see, we want to see the knowledge shared and applied and the innovations occur. And I do think we're increasingly seeing, you know, many journals now require that the data underlying the analysis are made publicly available. So there, there's a phase shift um, happening. So hopefully we are on the right track. I have a question for you, Susan. To, to that end, you know, we're developing our own citizen science app, uh, Biome, and it measures trees, it measures DVH using combination of computer vision and augmented reality, really cool. What would be on your wish list for nature observations for Biome to perform in the future to help with your research? Oh, the thing that I would love to see is just more up-to-date information and better coverage, right? Perhaps you could use something like, okay, here's all the points in the globe where we've managed to collect information, but we don't have anything. So, for example, I had a colleague that was like, I need a carbon sequestration rate for Uruguay. <laughs> and I was like, I have not found a single paper that quantifies carbon from natural forest regrowth in Uruguay. But we were able to build a model based on other points in the globe to predict carbon sequestration in Uruguay. So I was like, okay, here's our, our modeled rate, but like, could citizen science go and fill those key geographic gaps? The other thing is our, our globe is changing, right? Like our climate is warming, our rainfall patterns are changing, heat is increasing, um, and that's going to change tree growth. But, you know, we're pulling data from papers published five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And do those numbers reflect current reality? Probably not. And so having a more up-to-date, dynamic sense of how well our forests are performing, I think, would really improve our, our understanding of of what we can do with trees to tackle climate change. The road ahead, it twists and turns And the sun beats down and it burns But I keep, keep on pushing through And if 
every step quicker than the last My feet tread down this beaten path And I keep, keep on pushing through Cause I get up And I may fall right back down But you love lifts me back to solid ground Yeah, I get up Okay, I, I guess I can jump in with the biodiversity question, just since it's top of mind. Um, so in the intervening period, since we last spoke, um, a bunch of us from Earthshot went off to New York City Climate Week, which was an incredible week for a number of different reasons. And um, one of the big topics that came up, there was a whole day um, symposium on biodiversity, and it was really sold out. Tons of people there, lots of investors and country leaders and various other luminaries talking about the importance of biodiversity and, in fact, putting it alongside climate. Like The, the way that they characterized it was the, the twin crises of climate and extinction. And I was super happy to see that people were really taking this seriously and that it's arising um, in the public mind and in the, the minds of those who have influence in the world. And I just wanted to ask you, Susan, um, what are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on the loss of biodiversity and what science can do to, to help uh, arrest it? Yes. So I am a carbon accountant, so I usually talk carbon, carbon, carbon all day. Uh, but at heart, I actually um, am a biodiversity scientist. That was where uh, the subject I started with my PhD. And also as a mother, um, I have a nature nut for a daughter. She's eight. Um, and she knows more about all the different types of animals in the world than I do. She's always introducing me to these new creatures. And it's just heartbreaking to think that all of these animals that she's so excited to learn about or these plant species that I'm obsessed with are potentially at um, a risk of extinction if we don't turn the ship around. Um, but where I think about biodiversity the most from the perspective of the climate uh, crisis is how we can use nature as an ally and help um, advance our climate mitigation goals. So my, my PhD research was looked at the relationship between biodiversity and ecosystem functioning. And it was sort of like, if you increase biodiversity, you get an increase in pick whatever your favorite ecosystem function is, like number of insects supported, uh, um, uh, resistance to invasions, growth of the productivity of the system. As you increase diversity, you get an increased boost um, in the performance of that system. And so when thinking about things from a reforestation perspective, um, are there ways that we could diversify our tree planting so that we build systems that are more resilient to change and at the same time, you know, better able to support more plants, insects, bird, you name it, species, um, so we can tackle these climate and biodiversity crises at the same time. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you're trying to support um, establishing diverse systems through your own work at Earthshot. Yeah, um, fully functioning native ecosystems uh, are really important to us. Um, we have someone on our team who used to work at Vera, approving a bunch of nature-based um, kind of carbon projects. And a lot of them were exotic plantations, uh, monoculture plantations, where 
obviously there won't be as much biodiversity and they won't necessarily be beneficial for surrounding ecosystems. So it's really important to us. And I think that um, one clear message from New York's, from the NYC Climate Week Biodiversity Summit was that measurement remains something of an unsolved problem. There are various people chipping away at, at this, like Nature Metrics is doing a lot of work on eDNA, which is really cool. And um, there's different forms of indices and species distribution maps that one could imagine using to measure biodiversity, but there hasn't really been too much of a sort of a consensus on the best way to do this. And so I think that's some that's an area that we need to focus on at Earthshot because ultimately we want our economy to value this. And to do that, we need to have a metric that both is simple and can actually have um, some form of financial analysis and market sort of arise around it, but also is very much correlated with fully functioning native ecosystems. So something of an unsolved problem, something we, we really want to work on. And also we, th we believe our biome app will be really important to um, generate a lot of on the ground field observations that can help to uh, feed into predictive models for biodiversity. One of the um, techniques that I don't get to do, but others at the Nature Conservancy do work on is bioacoustic monitoring for biodiversity, which is another one of those super cool options out there. Though, again, you know, it sort of sound units become a stand-in for, for species diversity and abundance. And so it is, it is hard to find a good metric for biodiversity that includes um, the values and functions that you would want to, to see in a system. Yeah, bioacoustics is something we thought a lot about because the phone can easily capture audio. And in fact, we could even do that at the same time that people are making other forms of recordings like measuring trees and species detection and other things. And so um, I think the trick there is the analysis is actually sorting through the birdsong and figuring out if it is in fact birdsong that we're focusing on for this, for the bioacoustic recording and um, doing the species detection and doing some sort of frequency analysis and so on. But there's a lot we can do because smartphones these days have a ton of different sensors. And I think it would be really interesting to correlate also different measurements made by the phone uh, um, in different dimensions from different sensors and then putting those all together into a composite biodiversity model. So it's a super interesting area. Um, and in fact, we just hired uh, a field expert in biodiversity who can help us to come up with ideas for what to measure on the ground. That'll be really cool and very useful information that you're getting. One thing we saw at New York Climate Week was this panel where this scientists and this indigenous man were talking about their cosmology and they had this really cool video of these molecules vibrating and then showing these like rudimentary cell functions and then kind of like forwarding to where we're at today. One of the striking differences that appeared in my consciousness was the difference between um, the current economic system we have learning to value nature and then the consciousness that like kind of proceeds and goes beyond our current economic thinking steering the economy, the kind of like indigenous scientific worldview kind of steering the economy and having the economy like adapt to meet it in its true nature or its true evolving complexity. And uh, this question about biodiversity and carbon markets is interesting because like measuring it is key, you know, for like all the proof of value. But it's a very different question to like restore the world because it deserves to be restored because it's like gorgeous and beautiful versus making another metric that we can include in a model, like ultimately a financial model. And then, you know, maybe some like behavioral changes of like we hire a different person who like monitors biodiversity over a set years. I mean, there's some amazing infrastructure that could come out of 
actually putting in the model and hiring people to do the work and making sure that work gets done. It, it could meet in the middle or meet somewhere in a beautiful way where both things happen. We have the ethos to restore the world because it's sacred, as we like to say sometimes, and valuing it in the, eco- in the economic models. The, the need to kind of like bridge these two cosmologies became really apparent to me uh, during New York Climate Week that we attended. Yeah, I've been very careful. I, I think previously we would talk about nature as a tool, uh, as a valuable tool in our fight for climate change. And um, now we're very deliberate to say nature as our ally uh, in the fight for climate change because nature is not a tool for humans to use. Nature is a valuable entity all of itself. Um, but yes, I mean, I don't think there's a, a solution, a simple solution uh, to what you're describing, Armando. It's going to take lots of different approaches. I'm starting with education of children to get them to love nature for nature's sake, to recognize, you know, what nature could be, because our perspective starts when we enter the world and, and it's changing so rapidly. But yes, I don't I don't think we're going to need more than just uh, people who love nature. We're going to need uh, businesses on on board, too, and uh, politicians and governments. And right, there's lots of um, lots of work on multiple fronts needed to to figure out how we can best preserve and protect nature for nature's sake as well as for our own. I think it was really interesting observing some of the language at the biodiversity conference. It made me wonder, like, maybe we need both. We need to think of nature as an economic entity as well as something that we are and that we love. Um, Like I heard a lot of language like natural capital and think of nature as a supply chain partner and nature as national infrastructure. And I was thinking like, Wow, is this sort of, you know, economics way of expressing love? Like you have now reached the status of supply chain partner. Wow, we we you know we really respect you. Um, and just contrasting that language with what we heard on Friday, um, which was really the language of love and connectedness and oneness. And they they seem on the face of it like really far apart, like just super different worldviews. But maybe that's just where we are. And for us for the economy, you know, or for the power structures that we exist within on this planet to really value nature. That's the way that, that's the pathway to, to get there. I'm really glad to hear that, you know, you guys are consciously shifting your language around this because I think it helps bring in that, that worldview of we're all connected and we're all really nature collectively. Yeah, it makes me, Ally, Ally is a good progression. I imagine that progression could continue in terms of like uh, entering it as part of the story. Yeah. Sometimes I think about like environmental justice, not in the human sense of like repairing, like protecting people from existing environmental impacts that are poisoning their lives and then like recovering them. But environmental justice for nature, like like ecological justice or somehow just like how do we like repair nature because we messed it up and we know we messed it up and it deserves better. Kind of even reparations for nature. I don't even know what the, I'm kind of borrowing concepts here, but. You know, Armando, I'm thinking back to a couple of retreats ago where we did that kind of play and the play had different actors like the investor and the, you know, the, just, and then we had the planet as being one of the actors in the play. <laughs> it was really, really. Let me, let me spell this out actually. So we, we had an exercise at our retreat to kind of understand the complexity of our business where we had some people representing like project developer come in and do a carbon project and then there's all these different stakeholders in the room there's the indigenous community there's the project proponent who was going to like formally do the project and then there was the earth and there was like the local community and we like we modeled in a kind of a parody way like a very bad very bad process where like 
the person ignored the indigenous community. Earth was there screaming on the side being like, hey, I like need help. And he just completely ignored all the stakeholders are really actively trying not to ignore. And we all felt really weird. <laughs> Some of us were kind of shocked because we couldn't tell to what extent it was like intentional theater and, and just a really bad explanation, like a very bad stakeholder engagement process. Well, it's, it's, it sounds like a really funny attempt to try to um, walk in somebody else's shoes, right? Like you don't understand what people are going through and experiencing until you've had actually experienced their life. Um, and that's true for nature, right? Like how do we walk in nature's shoes so that we can we can understand the consequences of our actions and, and do better? Do y'all remember Gorilla who learned sign language, who they recorded a film for like COP20, what was it? Was it Coco? Yeah, Coco. And I remember they asked Coco something about like, what are they seeing happening to the world? And Coco is basically like, we know it's you humans. We've been <laughs> this entire time. <laughs> it was really kind of, it was really shocking. I mean, not shocking, but like confronting. I was like, wow. We, we also saw some like nature's rights people who are pushing the like uh, legal rep- legal personhood of nature. Yeah. And I was really inspired by them. And it made me ask the question, what would restoration practices look like if they were aligned with the, in- the internal impulse of the nature's rights movement of like nature has the right to exist, to evolve, to have all of its needs met. Yeah, it really got me wondering. And it even made it me feel like it was possible to manifest this market in a way where we like drive billions of dollars of capital to restore nature on terms that are beneficial to nature, like very, very aligned with its own integrity and resilience and continued evolution in the face of climate impacts. And maybe this could be like the first industry that almost becomes like (laughs) post-capitalist in its orientation. I mean, I, I was, I was pretty, pretty surprised when New Zealand you know, gave personhood to rivers and other natural features. And I just didn't think I'd see that anytime soon because it represented a level of awareness around nature that just went beyond anything I'd seen before. So I was very proud. As a, as a New Zealander, I was very proud that we'd actually made that step. And I think maybe other groups in other parts of the world have made that step as well um, towards granting actual legal personhood to natural features. One thing I do think about thinking about restoration and biodiversity that often the best or usually the best thing we can do is just to protect intact ecosystems. And so that is one thing I worry about that in our our focus on restoration, we miss the opportunity to protect lands that are already functioning in repositories for biodiversity. And that's sort of, if, if we could only pick one thing for biodiversity, we should be trying to protect those lands. But then it is useful to think about how can we use restoration to try to connect those protected lands, intact lands, um, you know, build corridors, connectivity, increase the area. And restoration in in general, I I have, my title is Senior Forest Restoration Scientist, and I actually struggle with the word restoration. Because like, what does that even mean, right? What are we trying to restore to, you know, pre-human, pre-industrial ages? Um, Are we trying to anticipate future conditions? And, And is how can you even use the term restore <laughs> at that point? But really, that's what we need to be doing is our, our climate is shifting so dramatically that, yes. So what, what thinking about biodiversity, it's like, oh, let's just let's try to protect as much as possible. Um, and then let's try to restore in ways that helps to buffer uh, those intact lands as much as possible. Yeah. 
those are definitely strong themes with a lot of the projects that we do. We do a mix of restoration, for some definition of restoration, and uh, conservation projects. And um, it's they're different, but they're related. And as you say, the biodiversity corridor is so, so important. This is one of the big themes of our project in the Azuero, in the Azuero region of Panama, is creating a really fully functioning biodiversity corridor in a region that really badly needs it. What do the lands look like in between the patches that you're trying to connect? Deforested land, basically, that's been used for various forms of agriculture and cattle ranching and so on. Yeah. So it's exciting. There's kind of a story behind each of our projects. And um, this is a really nice one also because it involves engaging with smallhold farmers. And so it's not just about talking to an NGO and getting taking land that's already ready to be restored. It's actually about shifting the incentives on the ground for people who've been on that land and who have, through no fault of their own, engaged in practices that have degraded the land. And so getting them to band together and agree to actually help restore the land, I think that's really key to the future where there's so much land that is under the stewardship of smallhold farmers that are under, I guess, what we could term adverse economic incentives uh, with respect to nature. And so being able to turn that around on the ground and really have people in allyship with nature, I think is going to be really critical to doing this at scale, to really turning things around at scale. And, and what, what have the projects look like? Like, what do they agree to do? Do they do set-asides? Do you replant native species? Are you setting a bigger forestry systems? What, what sort of restoration activities does it involve? There's a lot of reforestation, like active native replanting going on. We built a bunch of nurseries, so there's a lot of seed gathering and um, cultivation of saplings and then planting on the ground, as well as you know fireproofing and building fences and all the kind of things that are necessary to really ensure that the forest um, grows back. Funnily enough, though, um, Panama is also a place that gave nature's rights, nature rights, legal personhood. So... That convergence has already happened. We I don't know what, how it's changing, how anything plays out as of right now, because I haven't heard back from Andrew, but there's an intersection there, which is a very exciting intersection, I have to say. There's so much happening now that um, I, it just, it feels, I don't know if I said this before, but it feels like we're on this like 10 year roller coaster <laughs> where we're like building the ends of the track as we're going. It's like, will we or won't we save the world? But there's so much innovation happening on so many different fronts that um that i am encouraged but it still is like i don't we're not bent, we're not built to be like in 10 year nail biters <laughs> so i got to figure out how to deal with the anxiety uh but it, yeah i i am optimistic that through all of these different things that you're describing that we'll be able to to turn the ship around I wanted to ask you more about communicating hope, like with your daughter or with friends who see that you're involved in this work and want to know like how we're going to get, out, get get through this. 
and maybe with colleagues as well like how do you how do you sort of internally cultivate that hope and communicate it to others yes with my own kids um they're eight and three, so I don't really get into sort of the doom and gloom dire parts of climate change. Um, they know, well, at least my eight-year-old does, my three-year-old, who knows what she's thinking about, um, knows that I work on climate change and that there's too much carbon dioxide in the air and that I work on um, trying to grow trees across the globe to, to help fight that. But I think it comes up more, I give a lot of lectures, a lot of talks. I always start my talks with the like doom and gloom sort of latest story of climate impacts. And unfortunately, there's more and more of those every day, it seems. But then I always end it with like, okay, what are the message of hope? And the thing I like to say is that it's important to remain stubbornly optimistic, that we have to keep trying. We have to keep leaning in. We have to keep pushing towards a better future and like remain optimistic that it will turn out okay. And the things actually, I love TNC put one of these together. <laughs> where it was like a, a message, a video from the future talking about the past where we had already saved the world. And it's like, <laughs> it's like you just have to believe that it's possible. And once you believe it's possible, you know, you can do the work um, without all the stress and anxiety that it might not, it might not come together. Um, so yeah, so remain stubborn, stubbornly optimistic. Um, and then not everybody has the luxury of being able to make a lot of choices about what they buy. But for those that do, you know, what are you buying? Um, how much are you traveling? And then, of course, trying to ask people to to vote and think about who they're putting in positions of power and, and, and try to pick candidates that are going to make the hard choices to land us in a better climate climate place. How about you guys? How do you remain hopeful? I'll go first. Uh, I think when I first started working with Earthshot Labs, I was coming out of a pretty severe burnout from doing a bunch of climate activism here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then despite the organizing going very well, people just really shutting it down for like, you know, various reasons, not wanting certain power structures to get challenged or not wanting certain people to get the spotlight. And I really saw a moment where my community here in my region of the San Francisco Bay Area didn't really choose the principled solutionary possibilities over the politics. And so the solutions got kind of shut down, but at least on, on a social level. But yeah, you know, I have to say when I'm in spaces where people are actively thinking and talking and engaging in these topics, like New York Climate Week that we went to recently, I I found it really re-inspiring and really re-energizing. And then um, I think when I saw the first project pitch from, we have like projects over the world and we, we pitch them to investors or corporates to kind of uh, fund the reforestation effort. And then we saw this one, Madre de Dios, this our project is to reforest land degraded from illegal gold mining. And in that project, there'd be like a million tons of carbon sequestered over so many years and a ton of money would go to the indigenous community. I was like, that's awesome. That is just so great on so many levels. If that happens, I'm, wow. So yeah, kind of what everyone else is up to and what it could mean for us is very inspiring. You know, I've heard climate change um, being described as the perfect problem like there's just so many things about it that are challenging. It is a sort of a geologic kind of scale process, right? Even though there are some things that are immediate, like big storms and forest fires and flooding and things like that, it is a gradual process. And so human beings aren't as well designed for gradual disasters as they are immediate threats. It's just 
that's not the way we evolved. You know, we evolved to avoid saber-toothed tigers and other kind of more immediate threats. And so there's a number of challenging things about this, but I think there's a beauty in that. I think there's a beauty in the fact that even if Earthshot is super successful, like when we are super successful and we've restored millions of hectares, you know, all over the world, that's actually not enough. Um, we need action all over the sphere of human endeavor. You know, the energy systems that we use to power our civilization need to shift. The way that every human being behaves and our sort of motivations needs to shift away from consumerism. The way that we feed ourselves needs to shift. And so there's, there's a real complexity and a sort of maybe an overwhelming element to just so many things that need to change. But we're seeing that change happening in many different areas. Like I was listening to the My Climate Journey podcast that takes a really expansive view toward climate change and interviews a whole bunch of people. And, you know, um, the CEO of Commonwealth Fusion was talking about what they're doing and we share investors, an investor with them. And so I'd heard their name before, but hearing this guy talk about what they're doing, inventing these incredible new magnets that are going to result in these containment fields that can actually you know, host nuclear fusion. Like that's, that's amazing. It has sort of nothing to do with what we're doing, but they're on the same journey of trying to create radical change in the world to really address this problem at scale. And there's many, many other people working in agriculture and working in transportation systems to decarbonize them and in our own space doing reforestation in other ecosystems. And there's tons and tons of super talented, motivated people who are also very mission driven. Uh, all over the world doing inspiring things. So we can we can gain a lot of inspiration from them and hopefully we can inspire others with what we're doing as well. But we, we can do this. We have the technology, we have the knowledge, we have the, the will. It's a people problem. It's, it's basically marshalling enough people to really care about this and take action. But that's maybe that's my definition of being an optimist is just it is possible. We, we have what it takes to get through this. We just have to do it. Yeah, it, I mean... Yes, you're right. Climate change is really, I mean, it must be the biggest problem that our globe has ever faced other than sort of mass extinction events that we weren't involved in. And the level of collaboration that's going to be required across all countries, all people, all sectors is is astounding. Um, but you're right. You, I'm seeing movement on all of those fronts. And Armando, to, to your point about being a climate activist and and discouraged uh, by um, not having your your goals heard and acknowledged and accepted. I, I think back to um, a talk I was in when I was in grad school, where the head of the New York Department of uh, the Empire of the Environment was talking about how New York's forests were just going to be really crappy for a really long time, as the forests were transitioning from sort of the trees that were suitable for the old conditions to the trees that are suitable for the new condition. And she talked about how her model of change was the orthodontic model of change that um, when you wear braces, right, you're moving teeth, bones within your head and it can be incredibly painful if you do it fast. But if you apply slow, steady pressure in the same direction, you know, you can get everything to line up perfectly. So I think about that all the time, like, okay, I mean, we're running out of time, we have to move as quickly as possible. But it really is about like that slow, steady, maybe not slow, fast, steady pressure <laughs> towards the right direction. And that we'll be able to to achieve a future where like, oh, it's just going to be incredible, right? Our trees, our streets are going to be filled with trees. We're all going to have e-cars. We'll have nuclear fusion. Like, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I've had this whole thought stream. It's, it's kind of like a sci-fi 
parallel vision of how we solve the climate crisis, which I, I kind of I feel called to share, which is one, I had this insight on a meditation retreat and in the meditation world, I think in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about timeless awareness as the nature of the meditative mind. It's like not enmeshed in all the conditionality that's changing all the, that we're experiencing as physical sensations. I don't, I'm not, I don't really understand how this works. But anyway, I was thinking on the meditation retreat about the nature of our survival conditions here on earth. And they're almost timeless. You know, so we have like thousands and thousands of years uh, in our future. Well, time is just going to be going on with or without us. But like the time scale that everything, that the universe and the galaxies and even our own earth exists on is thousands and thousands of years. And I was thinking, I was like, yeah, we're totally missing the survival criteria. The survival criteria for us as a species is really slow and long. And within our lifespan, um, this 10-year decisive decade is like really coming quickly in cosmic time it's coming even more quickly and i'm like a big fan of the some of the degrowth models i don't really understand how we get economic degrowth i don't really understand how we get a society that fits on one planet or global civilization that fits on one planet without scaling some things back and i wish we could just slow down like slow down the whole process we're in where we could just consume less more slowly than we do now and somehow buy ourselves time, you know, just like kind of go into like low power mode is the analogy I like to use, like our cell phones where they all essential functioning is online, but it's just a lower resource use because I feel like most of the climate emergency, emergency mobilization frameworks I've heard have us ramping up to decarbonize in a very like immediate way and that which would require a ton of resource consumption you know, what if we just slow down for like 10 years, <laughs> you know, consumed way less, bought ourselves a little bit more time carbon budget wise, and then, yeah, just took a rest oriented approach. Like that would, that would make me very happy because I'm concerned about the speed at which things are happening, like the impacts are happening, all these innovations are happening. And, you know, they're, they're coming from all these different sectors of the world, all these different startups and all these how do we organize, how do we identify which one's going to be the most practical for where we're at when things hit? Is it just the markets? You know, is it just going to be like a market-based decision and some investor throws the money and has the conversation with the politician that becomes the the new product to replace the old product? I just, there's so much complexity. I wish we had, I wish we could slow down and give ourselves more time to manage it. You know, one of the podcasts I was listening to on the weekend, the, the climate journey ones was the CEO and founder of um, Joro, which does sort of personal climate footprint analysis and real time, almost like real time. And she was saying like, one of the big things she hopes is going to happen is that through the use of metrics and feedback loops and so on, is that there'll be kind of like an awareness of like what people's environmental footprint is in a way that people kind of are aware of calories or they're aware of stress or they're aware of their weight or other, other kind of metrics around life. And so if there's more awareness around like how much I'm consuming and what my environmental footprint is, then, then that's going to lead to a lot more uh, individual kind of action. And um, that really made sense to me. Like I really felt like, okay, everybody has anxiety now at this point about to some extent about climate change, right? Unless you're completely in denial. And so having some agency in terms of like, oh, here's what I could do to actually reduce my own footprint. Because I think that the whole sort of wide-scale coercive methods like and now we're going to be rationing x y and z it's just that's going to be like last you know so the, that's going to be like last resort but i think that modifying having having people just aware of of what the impact of their actions are 
and then providing a, a pathway, like a behavioral pathway to actually uh, correct them, I think hopefully is, is will be sufficient or will really help out. Definitely. I was thinking about that the other day when I was filling up my car with gas and I thought, could this be the last tank of gas that I ever have to get, right? Like, you know, can I eat out? We don't drive that much because I'm lucky to live in a city where we can walk most places or use public transportation. But like, I just, I'd never thought about, you know, you just get gas for your car because that's what you do. But now every time I do it, I think, could this be the last time that I ever have to fill up my gas tank again? And, you know, maybe one day we'll get an e-car um, one day soon, hopefully. But my own personal approach has just been sort of to make a list of all the things I can do. And instead of trying to do these radical changes, like I'm now going to be net zero tomorrow, I think like, okay, what's the first thing that I can do on the list and, and adopt that practice? And then once it becomes habitual, like, okay, what's the next thing that we can do? And you're right. You have to be aware of what those options are, um, but there are they, they are out there, right? What we eat, what we buy, what we do, how we spend our money makes a difference. Susan, is there anything that we haven't asked you that we should have asked you so far? Or are there any closing words you'd like to offer the audience before we I guess the, the things I always resort to are the need to remain stubbornly optimistic that we can do it, um, that we can tackle climate change and biodiversity crises at the same time, and that restoration of tree cover is a really powerful ally um, in our fight against climate change, but it's not the only one. And so I think what gets frustrating is when people are trying to do the sort of either or like, oh, well, if you do this, you won't be doing that. But it's like, no, we need to do all of the above. <laughs> we need all of the above in order to tackle the climate crisis. Um, and just remember that uh, we need the best brains, uh, best, best minds, best uh hard work that we can. Um, and I see that all the time from people across the globe trying to help solve this. So that's pretty good. I would, I guess for my last closing remarks, I, I was just thinking about the hope thing and different people in different parts of the world experiencing different conditions have different opportunities to help. And, you know, I personally would hope that, you know, everyone in Puerto Rico and Miami and Pakistan and all these places that are getting hit pretty hard that we can like come to our senses as a world and, secure all those people you know whether it's like proactive migrations where they people get relocated or it's you know coughing up enough money to restore the infrastructure that was damaged and you know i have this like somatic therapy session the other week and normally it's a little bit chaotic but this time my nervous system was process processing tension that was within its capacity within its yeah capacity to process tension and everything was just resolving like new impulse would come up, it would resolve as opposed to needing to like express and go through a whole creative loop of expression. And it was the first time I had a session that was like primarily integration. <laughs> and I, my, my hope is we can get to a place in the world where I, we've decided that everyone survives this to the best of our ability, that every population that's impacted is going to get recovered to the best of our ability. And that we're going to address the crisis at its root cause to the best of our ability. And we're just finally going to like, do the thing, resolve the issue. And um, yeah, I can, I can see that for us. You know, I think we were like late in the game where we've, we've been in denial for like a very long period of time. And at some point that's got to break. And I think hopefully the, the kindest, fiercest motherly love can take center stage where we just protect and recover people and the biosphere from all the harm that's been done. And then we've closed this loop, this stage of humanity where 
greed and corruption and unchecked power were seductive and glor- glorified and we go on to a more mature, yeah, more, more mature age. Yeah. I like that. Climate change is profoundly unfair. And those of us who have the power to make different choices uh, also have the obligation to make the better choices. Yeah. I mean, as someone who kind of, I pivoted my own career from not working on this to working on this, and it's been so rewarding and such a different experience to actually, um, on a day-to-day basis, do work that has real purpose and that is resonant with others who share that same mission. It's a real privilege and it's also very, it fills me with hope that when people get together with a common cause that really resonates deeply within them, that we can, I was about to say move mountains, and that's probably a bad analogy. <laughs> we can kill forests, we can, you know, restore entire regional ecosystems. <laughs> the opposite of moving mountains, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Susan, for coming on. Yeah, fun to chat again. All right. Well, onward. We will all keep uh, pushing for a better future. Thank you for listening to the Earthshot podcast. To learn more and get involved with the work we're doing at Earthshot Labs, visit earthshot.eco. The Earthshot podcast was produced by Reculture Media, and the music that opened the show is by Little Whale.